welcome to Peg Hipbone Music's Interview of the Month series. Um, we are coming to you from Tokyo, Japan today, and I am thrilled and honored to have the opportunity to, uh, to interview and speak with the great Peter Erskine, uh, one of the great drummers of all time, one of the great musicians of all time. Uh, Peter and I are here playing with Bob Mincer and his great big band at the Blue Note Tokyo. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to, to be with us today. Thank you. Yeah, my very busy schedule today. Otherwise, I'd be shopping for a camera that I don't need to <laughs> feel compelled to buy. Excellent. Well, let's jump right in. You grew up in New Jersey, uh, went to the Interlochen Arts Academy, and then from there went to uh, Indiana University. Could you um, just talk about the, those early formative years a little bit? Well, growing up in New Jersey, um, I began taking drum lessons at the age of five. And uh, at some point, uh, when I was six years old, my drum teacher, a gentleman named John Severa, uh, had heard about and mentioned to my mom the existence of these summer jazz band camps that were created and organized by Stan Kenton and um, Leon Breeden and Matt Benton, some of the famous jazz educators back in the late 1950s, early 60s. Um, the, uh, the camp was, was located in Bloomington, Indiana. Now, this was in the days before the interstate system was, was nearly mm -hmm. completed, so it was quite a big deal for my parents to drive all the way from New Jersey to Indiana, but they did. And, um, and so I met my future boss, Stan Kent, when I was seven years old, and I went to this camp. And that became a, an annual summer trek to go to these camps. Uh, and that sort of sealed my fate, uh, not only for where I would wind up going to college, but uh, who I would wind up working with, not only Stan Kenton, but uh, another future boss, Joe Zavinal, was also at the summer camp because Cannibal Adderley's band was in residence. And, you know, I, you're a younger guy than I am, but back then, uh, jazz was a dirty word in, in most schools. That's why we still have, uh, you know, uh, lab bands, stage bands. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, pretty much everyone calls them jazz bands now, but back in the day, uh, we had all these different euphemisms. Anyway. Uh, having gone to these camps in Indiana um, and meeting the, gen the gentleman who would become my teacher, Professor George Gaber, uh, it, you know, it seemed like I was destined to go to Indiana, to go to school. It was Gaber who told us about Interlochen Arts Academy, where I not only continued getting jazz education, but got a fair amount of classical training, or a lot of classical training, actually. For a while, I thought I wanted to be a symphonic percussionist, but Playing drums is just too much fun. <laughs> so anyway, um, got out of Interlochen a year early. Uh, I was 17 when I went to college for one year, uh, playing in David Baker's band. And um, Stan Kenton called and asked if I'd like to come audition. They needed a drummer. So shortly after my 18th birthday, I went on the road with, with Stan. That's awesome. Great to hear him. Um, lineage of that, and uh, your association with Stan is such a famous thing, and it's uh, it's great to hear how it all uh, the, the the beginnings of it. And obviously, talking about Stan, that was your first you know big professional job, and then uh, going to Maiden Ferguson's band. Um, can you just talk about you know kind of that period of time when you were with Stan, and also with Maynard, and some of your memories of that? Well, with uh, with Stan, um, uh, we were on the road pretty much about 50 weeks a year. We got 10 mm. days home for Christmas. Uh, I think that was more than like, I mean, you guys worked hard with Buddy, but Buddy took yeah. some time off for himself. Stan kind of like had no place to go. He mm. just wanted to be on the bus all the time. Um, and when you're young, it doesn't matter, you know, it's yeah. fine. In fact, uh, I, I was playing on the Ken band for uh, a few days and um, was sharing an elevator with Stan up to our respective hotel floors after a gig, and he turned to me and said, you know, Peter, we haven't discussed money yet. Uh, and so I looked at him and said, okay, how much do you want? <laughs> and uh, I think that was good for an extra $25 a week. Um, anyway, so I did that for three years, and then finally got tired of it and went back to school and wanted to finish school, and so I was back in Indiana and had every intention of finishing. Um, Maynard called, they needed a drummer, and I turned it down, and they called back, and I turned it down. Three times they called, and finally I said, okay, I'll do it just for the summer. Um, and first night, 
I knew I wasn't going to go back to school. It's just so much fun to play in a big band. So I did that for two years, and then uh, that's what led to the Weather Report gig. Mm. Um, you know, talking about big band playing, I've been very fortunate in my career to uh, play with many great big band drummers, Buddy Rich, Louis Belson, Mel Lewis, just to name a few. But you are, without question, my favorite. And uh, we were just talking about it before, like playing with you last night and the way you set up the figures. And it's like, if you if you come in wrong now, then it's not going to happen. So uh, it's it's really a pleasure to, to um, get an opportunity to play with you. And it's always... Uh, I mean, your sense of, of taste and obviously impeccable time and, and energy and just your musical the way you adapt to everything is really astounding to, to uh, I think, to all of us. We're all, all just thrilled to be in the band and playing with you. Um, could you, you know, Bone to Pick kind of mostly talks to brass players and we, we focus on, you know, folks who have a, a big impact on brass, which you certainly do. Um, can you just share maybe some general ideas about your your approach to big band playing as mm -hmm. opposed to maybe small group playing? Well, uh, you know, when any band sounds good, everybody sounds better. And, and when a big band sounds good, the, the drums, uh, they're more fun to play. And, and so uh, when I was younger, I think I was, I was more preoccupied with what do I play as a drummer? And then the more experience I got, and the more confidence I got, it became more of what can I do uh, to, to help the band play better, or what can I, how can I serve the music, or whatever. But, mm -hmm. um, sometimes people come up to me and, and say, oh, you're, you're, you're very selfless, you're very artistic, you're very this, you're very that. And I, I usually smile and laugh to myself, because it's like that joke I told you, the knock-knock joke. <laughs> okay, that's, that's good. Knock, knock. Who's there? Control freak, but this is where you're supposed to say control freak too. Um, when you're playing the drums, you have uh, uh, quite a bit of control over the destiny of a band. Loud, soft, and, and last night was a good example. I mean, we were adding dynamics, pretty much drummer driven. You know, we just brought it down, or I stopped at one point. And yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's when it's really fun. Uh, and so when I'm playing that way for the band, it actually is opening lots of windows and doors for me just as playing. Because, mm. because the drums are sort of improvising the whole time, even though I'm playing to the outline, um, it's like real-time uh, uh, Lincoln Logs or, or Lego toys, mm -hmm. like 3, 3D architecture. And I'm having so much fun trying to come up with uh, just rhythms to to either play in unison with the band. You know, so, so the brass section has written figures. So I can either play then parallel in unison or I can do counterpoint. Um, for example, in Beer and Bow, the bottom pal tune that Bob's arranged. And it's a do 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 So at one point, the brass have one, two, three, one, two, three, beep. So typically you you would hit that accent with the band. Um, since this section repeats the first time, usually or the second time, I switch it around. Um, I might go boom boom um, and I kind of got that idea from uh, an arranger who used to work with the Kenton band, Gene Rowland. Mm. Remember that mm -hmm. band? Sure. Back. And we were rehearsing, and I, I thought, yeah, I'm really, and I'm reading my ass off. I'm catching all these figures. Um, and he came up to me afterwards, really, like, unimpressed. And he said, he said, hey, man, he said, I got 15 guys playing these rhythms. I don't need you to play them, too. Mm. And that kind of stood the whole idea on its head for me because I thought that was the job. You know, but I was really playing the big band stuff like a circus drummer. Hmm. So then I tuned in more to like the way Mel Lewis played, uh, the way Nick Ciroli played, which is playing the holes. Mm -hmm. So Mel, with the band plays a thing, he plays the rest, not I mean the remainder, but the actual space. Right. 
And then I say, wow, that sounds great. So that's a, a little bit what I'm doing, even though Bob's Brazilian funk stuff, like we were talking about, has a fair amount of precision, so it does sound good for the drums sometimes to hit those accents. Mm -hmm. But I, it, yeah, I do like to try to serve it up on a plate. Wow. That's great stuff. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you, you seem to match with everybody you play with, but you and Bob are a great match, and it sounds like you, you know, you're approaching it almost from a compositional arranging kind of point of view, as well as sort of drum point of view. Well, we did a, you know, we did a session once. We were at the Clinton Studios, and and um, there was a, a figure. I think it looked like the end of four. So one, two, three, four, one, two, three. Ah. And and I was into the sync, so we're going one, two, three, four, one, two, three. Ah. And I thought it was very clever, you know. And right before we did the take, I remember Bob looked up to me and he went, Oh yeah, Pete, he said, Would you mind playing those figures with the rest of the band? <laughs> uh, so weather report. Um, your membership and association with the band involved in your career to superstardom, I would say. And uh, this is kind of a three-part question, and I know we could spend hours talking about that band in years. I could spend hours talking about anything. That's my problem. Um, could you just share maybe some of your favorite memories with the band? Um, also, a little bit about what it was like transitioning from the big bands into, you know, the preeminent small group of jazz at, at the time. And then, and then lastly, not to put too much on your plate there, but lastly, um, the incredible connection that you and the great Jaco Pastores had. If you could. Kind of maybe just touch on that a little bit. Well, it, you know, it was thanks to a brass player that I uh, got on Weather Report because a um, trumpet player named Ron Tooley. Mm. Um, you know Ron. Sure. You know, sure. And, and Ron was buddies with Jocko, and, and Ron was playing on Maynard's band, but he had played on Jocko's first solo album. Anyway, Ron called up Jocko when the band was playing in South Florida, expecting to get Jocko's answering machine, I think. And he was surprised when Jocko answered. They chatted a bit, and then Ron invited him down to the gig. And Jocko said, nah, you know, it's okay. I heard you guys last time you were in town. And then Ron said, well, we, we got a new drummer. You might want to check this guy out. And then Jocko said, okay, I'll be there. So all thanks to Ron Tooley, wow. I met Jocko. And then um, uh, I was commenting to my wife that it was... 34 years ago, exactly. Uh, what's today's date? 20, 21st? 22nd, didn't I? 21st, 22nd. Anyway, it was June 19th. Here in Tokyo, there was a press conference. And I had just flown over with Weather Report. I hadn't played a concert yet. And uh, so it's Joe Zavano, Wayne Shorter, Jaco Pastorius, and the new drummer. Uh, and I was so new that the on the posters, they had this very athletic body of Alex Acuna, and they kind of superimposed my head. <laughs> um, I said, wow, I know I was in such good shape. Um, so, to, you know, no one really has any question for me because nobody's really too sure who I am. Even though I've been to Japan once with Kenton and once with you know. So finally a reporter goes, up. I have a question for Peter Erskine, and he said, you You've played in the big bands at Stan Kenton and Maynard Ferguson. How does that qualify you to play with Weather Report? Hmm. You know, sort of like, why you? Hmm. Um, which was a good question, or a fair question. Uh, but I'm thinking, like, geez, thanks a lot, you know. I haven't yeah, right. played a note yet. So I start to give this, uh, you know, brilliant answer. Well, you know, good music is good music, and, and, uh, um, and, so Zavano grabs the mic and says, Weather Report is a big band and we're a small group too. Next question. <laughs> Beautiful. So, so uh, it, the, the band was very ensemble oriented and, and, and it was Joe who taught me this idea, always compose when you play. Hmm. Um, and the trick with Weather Report was, was, was to make it confusing for people to know, are they improvising or are they playing something arranged? And so I think that influenced the way I do a lot of big band stuff too, because it's always, how much is 
there and how much just happened. Yeah. Which makes it, it's just more interesting. And I think it, 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 it makes it a little more electric atmosphere for the players. And you can only do that if the band is good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The band is good. I can take those kinds of, or make those choices or take those liberties. And, um, uh, you know, do, do things that would, with a student band, I would, for example, I might have to be a little more careful. Sure, sure, yeah. So Weather Report was was a, was a great learning experience. You know, we all came out of big bands. I mean, Jocko uh, worked with Peter Graves down in Florida. Oh, right. played, okay, sure. played in his big band. Mm. Um, Wayne and Joe were in Maynard Ferguson's band together. Right, right. Uh, and even though Joe and Wayne never heard me with either Kenton or Maynard, not, you know, I've always felt that had they, they never would have hired me. Mm. But they they loved the idea that I played with the big band, and I think with, especially with Kenton, they were kind of thinking of like a fifties Kenton. Right, right. So, you know, why big bands? Um, we wrestle with this in music education all the time, right? Sure. You know, are we training people for jobs that don't exist? Um, well, there are professional big bands everywhere, but more importantly, the big band teaches you so much about musical teamwork and about phrasing and about all these things that whether you're playing in a duo or in a symphony orchestra, it's really helpful stuff. So big band really is, I mean, for me, it's the stallion of music ensembles. Mm. It's, it's as much as I love small group and tri especially trios, I like to really like trio work. There's nothing more satisfying than when a big band's firing on all cylinders mm -hmm. and they're cruising. Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, that's it's fun. That's great. Um, so you recorded five albums, correct, with the Weather Report. Do you have a do you have a favorite, or do you have some thoughts about what was going on uh, musically with the band during each one? One tune uh, on the Eight Thirty album called Sightseeing. It was a studio track we did, Wayne Shorter tune. I've always kind of liked that one. Mm. I mean, it. It's a it's it's a weather report tune that actually feels like this maybe contributed something to music. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's just it's it's, it's a good tune. It's a good recording. Mm. But they they don't have something special. I sure. mean, so much of of the music I recorded those years, um, you know, I don't like listening to it just because mm. I'm self critical. Mm -hmm. But but. Some of that stuff, like, ah, that sounds pretty good, pretty okay. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> um, so after your time with Weather Report, did you then you then move to New York? Is moved that, to New York. And um, you, you played with everybody under the sun, of course, but uh, I I always think about the, your time with Steps Ahead and, and, um, and that, uh, the, the contribution you made to that great band. Um, can you take us through that time in your life when you were in New York and maybe a little bit about what it was like playing with Michael Brecker, Mike Maneri, and not to correct you, but it was, I always feel it was more the contribution those guys made to my mm. life. Um, Brecker was, was wonderful, and I was still doing some stuff with Jocko, and, and Jocko was exciting and a wild card, and, and finally became very wild due to illness. Um, uh, but you know, I had a chance to work with Randy and, and Mentor with Jocko. I should say that you know, Bob Mentor and I have known each other since 1969. We went to school at Norwalk and Arts Academy. I love that famous picture uh, of you and Bob playing, Bob playing the bass. Bob playing the bass, yeah. Because um, he just thought, like, I can play better bass than the <laughs> kids playing. Um, so uh, I went to New York with, with the encouragement and kind of the blessings, the blessings and kind of the encouragement of Joe Zalmo. So, you know, if you really want to be a jazz musician, you got to go to New York. Which led to my leaving Weather Report, but I was thrilled to get to work with Brecker and, and Minieri, and I was a fan of Brecker, Minieri, and, and Gomez ever since I was young. And Grolnick was a newer, Don Grolnick was a newer name for me. Mm -hmm. uh, he probably became my closest friend out of all those mm -hmm. guys. Um, and then when Don left, Ileana Elias came in to play. Uh, and then uh, when Iliani left the band, uh, Warren Bernhardt played, and then Eddie Gomez split, Tom Kennedy played for a little while, and then Victor Bailey 
Sure. Where he worked with Zavanol, and then we went from keyboards to Chuck Loeb. Mm -hmm. um, so the band, you know, the personnel started changing, and then eventually I left and uh, uh, moved to California. But the New York years were fun. I was also doing a lot of stuff with John Abercrombie, and playing in in that kind of a setting without keyboards and without arrangements. Um, really uh, was very helpful in terms of not being so muscle-bound when I played and mm -hmm. I had to change a lot of playing habits. You know, you get into habits. Uh, I mean, I've never heard you be happy, but I'm sure on the trombone you could get into sure. yeah. habits. And drumming-wise, you do too. So uh, habits didn't work with a, a musician as fluid as John Abercrombie. Um, of course, we're getting away from the brass discussion, but no, it's all applicable too. I think I think it's a really good point. Yeah, it's, it's uh, cliches or habits or playing what you know or playing from muscle memory is is really the, uh, the I don't want to say it's the death of, of, of the creative spark, but it, it does. It, I find it just really paints you into a corner so quickly. Mm -hmm. It gives you very little room to maneuver or so. Um, I don't know if some of your questions later would lead to this, but this all, the way I'm, you know, I'm teaching now, the way I think about a lot of music, it just has to do with intent, kind of, and, and rhythmically how you're feeling the subdivisions. And if you're tuned in enough to a piece of music or something, like last night, how we could stop, but it didn't feel like, oh, it stopped, it's a bad thing. It was like, oh, it stopped. Still feel the rhythm going because we stopped with the, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm curious. There must be some applicability or, or relationships in terms of blowing. I mean, because I mean, correct me, but it, it seems like New York brass players, uh, there's a different quality to the strength of how you blow. It seems rounder, fuller, and I would almost say more classically oriented mm. New York compared to. Los Angeles, and it's not saying one is better or worse than the other, because sure. I love the horn sections on both coasts, but the LA seems a little more power oriented and New York seems a little, is, is that a fair generalization? I, I, think that is a, I think that is a fair generalization. I mean, I'm, 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 uh, I'm not one of these uh, New York guys who's going to staunchly support New York, period, but I, I many of my friends uh, in Los Angeles, I think, are some of the greatest brass players, like Bill Reichenbach, Chuck Finley, Jerry Hale, these, the guys are just tremendous. But, Ron, yeah, well, of course, one of Bob McChesney, Andy Martin, the list goes on and on. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there is a difference in the, in, the, in the approach, and I think, not, I think, I haven't heard it, heard it put that way, but I think it's a very good, uh, way to look at it and maybe it's just the amount of jazz playing that we end up even if you're not really primarily a jazz player you just find yourself in those situations and there's more uh -huh. emphasis on that kind of thinking I'm, uh, I'm not exactly sure but um, um, anyway this it kind of leads into the next couple questions that I have for you I mean when I look at your uh, bio which I did before our interview and I look at the range of artists and the various styles of music that you've been involved in, it's astounding. I mean, uh, we all know, but just to name a few, Pat Metheny, the Berlin Philharmonic, Steely Dan, Freddie Hubbard, Joni Mitchell, the London Symphony Orchestra, Joe Henderson, the Yellow Jackets. Uh, this, and just this morning, I was looking at my uh, um, special payments uh, <laughs> statement, uh, Cats and Dogs 2, The Revenge of Kitty Galore. That's, yeah, that was a big one. That was my next one on the list, actually. But, uh, <laughs> but you beat me to it. A fine, um, a fine film. Actually, Christopher Lawrence did a, did a nice job with that score. But, um, but clearly, you, you've done everything. I mean, you get under the sun that you can musically imagine. Um, I just was curious to your, your thoughts on your approach to these different musical settings and how you have this, it seems like it's an innate ability, but clearly you think about it all the time of making um, everything feel so musically comfortable when I would imagine even for the great Peter Erskine it's not always that way in every situation you find yourself but is there something that in your approach that allows you to transfer so easily between these different uh, styles thanks for the compliment I, you know most of those styles are related to the styles I've grown up listening to or the music I like mm -hmm. um, so I grew up in the age of uh, 
not only, you know, Art Blakey and Bebop, but Beatles mm-hmm. uh, and James Brown. So uh, that combined with the sort of classical sensibility uh, uh, that I kind of dived into for a few years um, makes it enjoyable to straddle or put one foot into one realm or the other. Um, certain things aren't me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for example, you know, within the jazz realm, if, if uh, something sort of Oscar Peterson uh, trio based, uh, I find myself at a loss. I just don't know what to do after a while. I just mm-hmm. feel like I just don't really have enough vocabulary. I don't speak this mm-hmm. dialect that comfortably. Um, so certain realms of jazz and then uh, you know, I, I can get into the funk thing, but my 16th notes tend to be a little more legato, so they tend to swing more than the really great, like, funk drummers. Mm. Guys who can really do that pocket thing. Um, so I, I'm, I'm able, finally, I think, to admit that, yeah, I'm, I'm really not the drummer for all occasions. Mm. But, but you want to be when you're growing up and you want to do studio work. But, you know, I'm, I'm fairly happy with the variety of things I get to do. And then I just learned after, I mean, it's, I'm on about 600 albums now. And I just got tired of, of hearing an album when I made a, 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 what I would term a bad choice musically. So I just learned to kind of weed some of those bad choices out. And a lot of those, I think, were ego-based, like just wanting to put my stamp on something when it really wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. And then getting more comfortable with just getting to the, the heart of the music. Um, you kind of answered this, this question, but I, I just want to ask it in this, in this kind of way. Um, great drummer in New York named Warren Odes, who's a dear friend of mine, and uh, he's a huge Peter Erskine fan. He, he asked, he said, you know, I really want, would love to pick Peter's brain about this, so I really feel like asking this. Um, you know, there's certain players that um, it seems like we just hang on their every note, and you're certainly one of them. Um, Bob Mincer's one, Michael Brecker, um, and oh, thank you, you're too kind. Um, and and I'm curious that you know we all kind of know what the X factor that there isn't kind of an X factor. We don't know exactly what it is, but there is an X factor. And I'm curious if there's some sort of, in your mind, an awareness or discipline. To, to follow that we can kind of, for, for all of us, get to that point where we're really kind of in the moment and, and reacting and in the flow. Um, certainly music education has evolved so much from when I was in school and when you were in school, and there's so many more tools that we're given. But in terms of, uh, in terms of the magic element that you bring, um, you know, real improvising, real in the moment, reacting and flow, um, it still seems somewhat elusive, but um, it sounds like from everything you said today, you, you, you get closer and closer. To me, you're there, but you, it seems like you're getting closer and closer to, to capturing that every time you play. Mm. But is there a thought perhaps behind that? Jocko used to tell me when I got too much of the head game with it, he said, hey man, he said, stop thinking so much, just concentrate. <laughs> Wow. Which means just listen. So I mean, if, the short answer, if you listen to the music, it'll tell you everything you're supposed to do. Um, and that's when it seems like you're in the audience mm. hearing it and you're not up there playing. If, if you're at all self-conscious, um, then that's when all the gremlins prevent you from, mm. from being in the moment. And then you combine that with uh, a little bit of passion, and a little bit of really caring, uh, and then just a little bit of uh, what, for lack of a better term, I would call showbiz savvy. Just like an actor can uh, summon up an energy and, and, and uh, deliver a line with a specific intention to, for all intents and purposes, we would truly believe he's very angry, mm-hmm. for example. And the actor could turn right around. I'm not angry. But they have this. So, some of this music, uh, okay, uh, Irikepto, Bob, so after we do the ensemble thing, and then it, it goes soft and it builds, and then it breaks into the trumpet solo. Mm-hmm. 
that's an emotional moment. I mean, there's like a cathartic sort of breakthrough and you want to, you want to, you know, like just, boom, you turn a corner and you threw cold water on the listener's face and you slap them on the ass. And it, but, it, yeah, but it's got some sort of dramatic turn. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm somewhat emotionally involved, but it's also musical technique that I suggest that, hey, we just notched it up. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, and you can absolutely. see it as palpable. I mean, like, everyone goes like, oh, cool. Yeah. No, but but if, you, if you lose control at that moment, and like, I'm so excited, I'm so excited, and then you spoil it. Mm -hmm. it again, but sorry to call the actor analogies, but no, it's, an it's actor true. to make the audience cry, if the actor actually starts crying, and starts being miserable, then the audience after all, it's like, what's going on? Yeah. But the actor who knows how to just evoke that emotional thing. It's, it doesn't mean we're not involved, but we, we still retain a measure of musical or artistic, just enough distance to... So you're in the moment, yet I think you always have to be aware of, especially drums in a big band, because I, I've just, you know, I am sort of driving the bus. No question, yeah. So when we get to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you know, my job is to let you all enjoy the scenery. I got <laughs> to keep my eye on the road. You know, otherwise we're going to get a little too close to all the excitement. Well, that's great, and uh, that's a lot of insight there. And I think even towards the beginning of that answer, you said uh, taking the ego out of it, and that to me is uh, a big thing. And you can really hear that in someone's playing. Um, this, a lot of this, is going to be uh, transferable to this question, but I, I just want to acknowledge. I mean. Your body of work as a solo artist is uh, as prolific as it is exceptional, and we all know the virtuosity you bring to the drums, but you're a brilliant composer um, as well. Um, can you kind of just talk a little bit about some of your solo projects and, and how maybe you approach things as a composer and as a producer? Yes. Most everything's in the key of C. <laughs> so I would take the word brilliant. <laughs> um, uh, I just, you know, I like melody. It's, it's, uh, you know, despite that I'm a drummer or whatever, um, I I like tuneful things, and um, I'm not afraid of it. You know, I'm not afraid of a, a simple song. Mm. And I wish I was more sophisticated. Here's my advice: if you're in school, study counterpoint. And learn how to play the piano and be able to be able to read bass clef, treble clef, learn orchestration, learn how to do you know transposing all these things, learn chord voicings. But if I if I could go back in time, uh, I would study counterpoint. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's the secret to all great writing. Mm -hmm. Vincer knows it. Vince Mendoza knows it. Sure. And you can just listen to their stuff all day. And and then he, I read a great description about counterpoint. Um, and, and it was in, in one of the uh, books about it, and it said, you, you don't, you know, if you're trying to explain counterpoint, people don't even know it, but it's that element in the music, like when you go to a Broadway show, when all of a sudden your hair stands up or you start feeling an emotion. Mm -hmm. And I call it when um, uh, my wife and I were, uh, were at Disneyland, and uh, you know we stayed to watch the fireworks and the, the Tinkerbell and the whole mm -hmm. thing. And that's on cue, the, the pre-recorded soundtrack they start playing, When You Wish Upon a Star. Then, of course, they had the French horns doing their soaring little counterpoint. And I got the little goosebump reaction. And uh, I went, yeah, it's counterpoint. That's, yeah. that's what's making this such a special moment for these thousands of people. And most of them wouldn't notice it. Right. Yeah. Right? So, in a way... Bringing it back to the drums, away from composing, I feel it's very modest work compared to drumming. But it's all counterpoint when I'm doing. Basically, like mm -hmm. an example, I was talking about the, with the setups. I mean, so I, it, it, it's rhythmic and tonal and textual counterpoint. And, and, and so maybe I'm making up for the fact that I didn't get to study it. And I don't really know the rules of writing counterpoint. But intuitively, I get it. Drumming-wise. Certainly, yeah. That's a great uh, great piece of advice. Um, 
your company, Fuzzy Music. Uh, it's been a personal inspiration for me. I love it. Everybody should go to fuzzymusic.com and check it out. It's just fantastic. Um, to me, you know, we're talking a lot about Bob Mincy because we're here with Bob, but you and Bob... That's F-U-Z-Z-Y-M-U-S-I-C.com. Uh, go there as soon as... Actually, actually I pause the interview and go there right now. Um, but uh, We'll be waiting. Um, you, you and... Go ahead. Okay, we're back. Um, you and Bob Mincer, to me, are, are, you know, and there are others, but you I, I, you guys are friends, and I'm uh, inspired to get to work with you. Um, you guys are the prototypical um, consummate musicians for the 21st century. Yeah, but, and, but hip bone is a much better uh, name. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I have to compliment you. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll take that. Um, but you, in short, you're kind of, you're involved in every aspect of the music, from playing, performing, writing, arranging, um, education, production, and, and entrepreneurship as well. Um, can you just maybe share uh, what what is and what was your vision for starting uh, Fuzzy Music, and and uh, and also kind of maybe just briefly touch on how that could relate to a young person trying to uh, build a career in this you know ever changing music business of ours. This one I can give a relatively short answer. <laughs> um, Bob Beals was a, a gentleman, a inventor, tinkerer, uh, music industry figurehead for many years. Uh, he ran Evans Drumheads, which was eventually bought by the, the, the Dario family. They, they make the world's greatest guitar strings, and now they make you know, the world's greatest drumheads, which I thought were the world's greatest back when Bob was making them in this very small factory in Dodge City, Kansas. Anyway, a uh, neat old guy, and uh, I was doing a gig in Wichita, and he drove over to see me. He wanted to show me some new heads he was working on. And uh, uh, I think Lucy and I just had our, our, our daughter, Maya, and I was running around a lot, and Bob just kind of chuckled and said, Peter, he said, you need to learn how to, how to earn money while you sleep. Mm. And I thought... Wow, no one had ever said that. So we started just looking at, um, uh, well, how can you do that? Well, in music, certainly royalty uh, bearing items, and, and maybe that would uh, be in the form of songwriting or, or in making recordings. And in making recordings uh, where you, I mean, nowadays, it's, everyone has their own record label, but at the time, um, you know, you you had to respectfully go ask some guy in a suit, um, please, this is the vision I have for my music, I would like to make this recording, and then whether he said yes or whether he said no, you know, there would hinge your musical plans and mm -hmm. destiny, and we just thought, well, let's do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, these guys. So even though we didn't have the, the, the promotional and distribution strength of these companies, we had the strength of the satisfaction that we did it when and how we wanted. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, like the old MasterCard, that's priceless. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't buy that. Freedom is priceless. So, um, you have to wear a lot of different hats nowadays. Um, uh, I just introduced, three days ago, introduced a, a new app. Mm, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Tell oh, us a little bit about that. Um, it's called uh, the Erskine Joy Luck Play Along app. Uh, you know, I I have great ideas. I think I come up with the worst names for. Oh, for I have Oh, contrary. I thought that's a great name. <laughs> but Joy Luck, of course, gets its inspiration from Amy Tan's novel Joy Luck Club, uh, and it, it's the name of an album. The most recent album I did on my label Fuzzy Music with the group I call my new trio. Fardan of Sepian on piano, very talented, Berkeley trained mm. keyboard player, and my nephew, Damien Erskine, who plays electric bass. And this was the first recording I had done in quite some time that, that had uh, separate, uh, isolated audio tracks for piano, bass, and the drums. I don't know if we just do it all in one room. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I thought. 
uh, it'd be cool to do a play along. And I was going to uh, approach it uh, in a traditional sense. Uh, well, let me see. Uh, we'll put out a book. We'll put out a CD. Hmm. Maybe it should be a DVD because I'd like it to be music minus drums, but also music minus bass, music minus piano. We can do three books. No, not three books. And all of a sudden I thought, you know, apps are the new paradigm. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I'm no genius to recognize that, but it seems like this is the first app that fills this play-along niche because, you know, now if you want to do play-along or music minus one, you can either buy an album for $9.99, basically $10, for music minus one instrument, or you can buy one track at a time, $0.99 cents or $1.00. Music minus whatever. So instead, we we put an entire album's worth of music into the app, and I created mixed stems of all the songs minus drums, all the songs minus bass, all the songs minus keyboard. Lead sheets from the sessions, full transcriptions of everything, solos, playing, uh, drum beats, um, textual analysis. Uh, within the app, you can print or email all this music, uh, this iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, um, photos from the session, this kind of stuff. But also, uh, uh, instead of, uh, with most playlongs, you know, they put the click on one side and the music on another. This is full stereo, and then you can control the volume of the click wow. by slider. And then you can also, I think you, um, I don't know if we figured out it's very easy to control the click on off and you just have count count in only you don't need click to play this stuff hmm. um so you know students can use it not only for practice but they can use it for recitals juries public performance and we're thinking of uh, making a, a, a contest in cooperation with vic firth and just a discussion with them now but, uh, play along app you know, people submit post their the entries on like YouTube. Sure. So, um, wow, but you know, we can involve musicians from all over the By the way, uh, we've also done music minus with uh, the solos on this. So, take your ball and you want to play along with this, you, you can. Um, but now that we have this technology in place, with you're thinking we're going to do like standard forms, I'm going to do one of just drums for horn players to practice with, they just want to practice mm. different tempos yeah. with drums, different kind of tunes. Uh, an Afro-Cuban one, so uh, this could be the start of something good. And, and, and fuzzy music, we may still do some recordings, but I think the app paradigm again, if we do recordings, we may release them through the app store. Mm -hmm. uh, just because I think it's more interesting that you can do. Yeah with apps, because the cool thing with the app store, this is why I like it, you can fix and upgrade your product and it automatically reaches every customer who's bought it. So imagine, like, you you put out an album and then you realize there's something you wanted to change. Mm -hmm. You can't ask people to go buy the album again, but everyone would just, just uh, get that improved version if, if, if you wanted to get it to them. And, and all they would have to do the next time they hook up their device, there it is for them. So it's a, it's a very cool yeah, that's opportunity. Yeah, incredibly cool. Yeah, yeah. You seem to be at the front edge and of that the, too. So. The other thing, would you mind to hand me my iPad? Lovely assistant. Yep. and chronicle of, uh, of, you know, my years of weather report. It ah, kind of goes back and forth. What a great photo. Nice? Where, where was it? That was at Haneda Airport. Ah. Just a few days more than exactly 34 years ago. Wow. That is fantastic. On the square looking down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... That's uh, that's been a, a, a process of uh, of two years uh, working on this book, and I, I just thought I'll show you the app. 
Nice. Oh, that's great. There's the app, and so we can take a we can take a tune, say, um, and we'll uh, if someone wanted to listen to the album performance, they could. against the wall all afternoon until that makes you feel better and it won't mm -hmm. or just all right so how can we use the technology how can you leverage it or spin it so you won't go nuts mm -hmm. and and so it's just learning to speak that language I think yeah that's inspiring I mean it's it's well, a great I, lesson you're, you're so proactive in addition to all the, the great musicianship I'm just I'm inspired by the, the fact that you're forging ahead of that and it's such a great way so the world needs trombone out <laughs> this is what I'm doing well, uh, well for right now they'll have to uh, check out the Erskine Joy like uh, well play let's, let's work let's do a trombone out that's oh. good stuff um, <laughs> Peter just a couple more questions and uh, this gets back to kind of the drum thing and uh, I was interested in this one uh, if you were to pick say five to ten drummers who've had the biggest uh, influence on your playing. Um, could you maybe share who those might right. be? Well, I'll just I'll do it in order of as soon as you ask the question. Mel Lewis came to mind first. Um, and I'm thinking of Mel when, when he was still on the West Coast hmm. doing those recordings with like Marty Page. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and then when he went to New York um, it's just quintessentially great drummer. Mm -hmm. He never he never made a bad choice that I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. It just always seemed to be musically right. Um, Elvin, stylistically and just for that incredible sense of danger. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the drummers I like listening to are, are names that aren't... Uh, I mean, you know, because you always have your Tony Williams, your Jack DeJanette, your Buddy Rich. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you leave anyone off that list, it's a, it's a sin. Um, Philly Joe Jones, Art Blakey, Roy Haynes. Uh, there's so many great drummers, but um, I was, I really like listening to a lot of the guys, especially the New York drummers, who, uh, drummers like uh, Don Lamond, O.G. Johnson, uh, of course, Bernard Purdy. Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, Bill of Warnia. Oh, wow. Yeah, these, uh, I mean, you may have run into Bill. Yeah, on the yeah sure, sure. But before he did that, he was a tremendous studio drummer. Right. And it's just by luck or accident, I grew up listening to a lot of these guys on albums. And I was just fascinated by not only you know, what I heard on that record, but because I've, I got enough albums, my dad was so cool about letting me buy a record, the either consistency I would notice or how they were changing. And, and especially the way the music was in the 60s, there was just so much going on that every record was sort of like, what's going to happen now? Mm. You know, you were really curious just to hear how these guys were growing. And they were young too, a lot of them, just like in their 30s. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, Shelley Mann was a huge influence. Uh, Nick Ciroli. Um, was a big influence. Um, I think Blakey uh, was one of the bigger. Uh, Lewis Hayes, I, I was crazy about him. So mm -hmm. I think I've gone probably over 10 already. That's great. Grady Tate, Grady uh, Tate. Yeah. Phenomenal drummer. Um, 
Mickey Roker, uh, and then the guys today. I mean, you know, Ed Sof, John Riley, uh, Billy Stewart, uh, Keith Carlock, um, Louis Nash, uh, John Hollenbeck. I mean, I, I'm going to leave out names again, but there's so many good players. Yeah, it's it kind of one consistent thread through this interview. So like, you are a very open person, and you're taking in from everybody and, and, and giving out to everybody. It's amazing. Uh, I think we can all learn a lot from just hearing you, you answer that one question. Hollenbeck is, uh, is really impressive. Mm -hmm. that, that guy can write. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, the, the whole the, the Brookmeyer influence thing, which uh, I've admired more than been part of. You know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I was a big fan of his playing always. And his writing I'm not as familiar with as I wish I was. Mm -hmm. That's because I'm on the West Coast, and we have to we have to boast about our scene. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I do. Uh, I I'll sometimes take exception to some of the New York exceptionalism. Um, right, right. I've gotten a little bored with some of the stuff I'm hearing in yeah. New York, and I only only to say that um, I kind of like and have always liked West Coast jazz, and it's, you know, you know. Okay, so the, the Hawaiian shirts have a little bit of a negative <laughs> impact in terms of hip. But I don't have a problem. But well, you know. not everybody wears one when they play. I, I don't wear them to recording sessions. I, I did once and I thought that was jazz. So. Well, I grew up in San Jose, so I'm always going to have a, a soft okay. spot for uh, all, all things Good. California. But Peter, um, just one last question, and, and it can be, uh, you can take it however you'd like. But, um, in your vast career and all the things you've done, if you were to, to just give one piece of advice to a young musician or a musician, anybody in between, um, what would that, what, 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 what might that be? Have fun. That's my advice. Yeah, that's, that's a great piece of advice, and uh, I think the older I get, that's be in the moment and uh, enjoy the moment, you know, um, I certainly have uh, this week playing with you, that's for sure. Um, Peter, thank you so much for taking time out of your day, and uh, thanks for uh, you know just years and years of great playing and great music, and we really appreciate you stopping by today. And uh, don't forget fuzzymusic.com and uh, the Erskine Joy Luck Play Along. Good, great stuff coming from uh, from Mr. Erskine. So we will see you all next time on Bone to Pick.